Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Athena Dixon, Books and Poetry, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, we'll be speaking with Vernon Key III about his book, Southern Migrant Mixtape. Vernon Key III is a Virginia-born writer that California molded into an educator. He lives and teaches in Oakland. His purpose is to teach the next generation the importance of relaying their personal narratives, sharing their experiences, and taking control of their destinies. He holds an MFA from California College of the Arts and a Master's in Teaching Literature from Bard College. Welcome to Vernon, and thank you so much for being willing to talk to us today. No, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Athena. Kind of thinking about how I wanted to approach talking to you today, I wanted to kind of look at the journey to the book and the book itself, um, all kind of all wrapped up into one. Oftentimes, what gets overshadowed by the actual book itself is the journey to the page. Um, But as both readers and writers, we both know that we exist outside of the book and on the way to the book. So... Touching on that, I wanted to know, kind of, do you have like an earliest writing memory at all? Earliest writing memory, um, I think my my one of my earliest writing memories. I was in um, Odyssey of the Mind growing up, um, and I remember um, for Odyssey of the Mind, we had to like um, create. We were on teams. I was like, I think this was my my third grade year. And we were on teams um, with other people, with other students around our age. And one of the, they would give us a prompt for like um, to create a, like a, a play. And we as the kids had to write the play, um, direct it and perform it in front for in a competition. And I remember I spent like this entire weekend. First of all, I like, I couldn't make it to practice. Um, like the either the Friday or the Monday because I, I was sick with the cold and I spent like the whole weekend like writing this like this like this play about time travel because that was the prompt that year and it was about someone I can't remember much about it but it was about someone who had needed to go back in time to save a dinosaur that will that like um something about this dinosaur was beneficial for the future uh and I remember, like, um, just like I, I was kind of shot down by that. I had like this OM coach that me and her, um, OM is Odyssey of the Mind, and me and her had like um, we didn't get along. She had an issue with me. Um, I don't know what that issue was, but she had an issue with you know my brown body in this Odyssey of the Mind team full with kids who didn't look like me. Um, and she had an issue with me. And I remember like, um, my mom trying to tell her like, yo, um, Trey, people back home call me Trey. Trey was, sick. um, Trey was sick. Um, he couldn't make it to practice, but he wrote this, this play. And I just want to know if you can consider it. And I just remember her shutting it down and being like, no, we already chose what play we're doing. Um, one of the kids wrote it. It's really good. Didn't even like look at mine, like kind of refused to look at it. Um, but that is like one of my earliest writing memories. Um, and like, that's kind of my journey into writing. Like um, I remember like after preschool, um, I went to a private preschool and then I 
had to jump into like the like the um, public school system. And I remember like because of that, there was like an issue with like things that I did not learn as far as um, reading and writing. And I remember them them trying to label me. I was in like um, kind of like a hooked on phonics um, reading class for a while when I was in elementary school. And it was kind of like uh, because of that, um, I always felt like writing was something that I was going to struggle at, that I, I wasn't going to be good at. Um, and like, in a way, like the system was telling me not to do it. So I feel like my, my first writing story is me being told, like, you know, not even being, not being, not even given the chance, but like, kind of like my journey into writing is because, um, I've always liked English class and I always thought I was good at like connecting, um, literature to like the the world at large but you know people or teachers instructors whatever in some way or form just like letting me know that I wasn't that good at it or I had this issue that was going to hold me back from doing it it was like you know it was like knowledge that you know was um, that I was barred from or um, knowledge that um, wasn't meant for me um, and that was like kind of like the just like you know that that that's what made me even a more curious reader, which made me you know of course um, initially made me want to be a storyteller and to you know write stuff. Um, you know, I always told myself growing up it was just like you know I want to be able to write a story like that. I want to be able to write like that. It was you know when I when I read a good story um, and like a, a really good like short story or something that was just like chilling like Shirley Jackson's um the lottery was one of the first sto- like one of the a story I read in fifth grade and I like after I read that story I was like I want to be able to write like she does I want to write a story like that like you know where you don't know what's going on until the end and then at the end when you find out that aha moment that that climax is like like bone chilling. And I always wanted, and I always wanted to be a writer like that. That kind of early experience is still kind of informing what you're doing now that you're putting out your own content that, that kind of influenced um, where you wanted to go both career wise and writing wise. Yes. Um, yeah. 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 And um, like my, I feel like my writing now is definitely just like, I still like to write fiction and my fiction is very much different from like the poetry that you read for and and the in the poetry when it comes to poetry it's like um that's a space where i feel like you know i can totally be myself and be vulnerable because um one of my 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 own values as a writer is to be vulnerable um being like a queer black man from the south i feel like i've experienced some things that i was a holding on to because I felt shamed for them, even though there were like things that you know happened to me or things that I participated in when I was much younger than I am now, um, both in body and in mind. Um, um, but I and I and I feel like there's some there is something that needs to be said and um, read about and kind of like um, disseminated in the world or to like you know, those who may be experiencing the same things that I have experienced as a Black queer man. And I just want to always kind of let people who feel like they are marginalized and othered in this society 
to feel like they have this safe space on the page. And that page is like expression. That page is also letting some of this these traumas out so we're not holding on to them. Um, because like it's very therapeutic, like um, in a sense, the same way that I get um, a lot of like kind of like um, I get my batteries recharged when I go and talk to my therapist are the are pretty much the same ways that I get when I, you know, when I when I finally sit down and I tell myself I've been running away from, you know, telling this story about my past for a while and I want to be able to and I want to tell it. Um, and that's why, like, you know, you see um, my book, Southern Migrant Mixtape, that's why you see it kind of, you know, kind of like break off into like these more prose like narratives of storytelling and then break into poetry because there's still like, you know, maybe that's still my subconscious finding more safety in and like being able to express some things poetically rather than just like explicitly saying them. Um, and like, you know, I'm still on my journey of like, how do I say some of the things that I've been running from and how do I get them out and tell the stories? Because they're, you know, I feel like there are things that happen like I'm, I'm like really, um, kind of like focusing on this, kind of like this, this, um, I guess this, this, this space where, um, especially like kids of color, queer kids of color in the South, like how they are kind of like left defenseless when um, they grow up in like in a household that does not know how to accept them and, you know, speak to them and, you know, help them grow as, you know, as easily as it is with, you know, more like the, the heterosexual siblings and things like that. Like when, you know, when you are a, when you're heterosexual and you grow up in a Christian household, um, a black Christian household, you know, it's still the same thing where like, you know, my sister, you know, when boys wanted to take her out on dates, it was, you know, you come, you come to the house, you, you knock on my door, you meet my father. Um, they know where we're going. They know all of these things. But and when you're queer and black in the South and you're growing up in this household that is showing you that in some ways and form that it's not all right to be queer without explicitly saying it. Um, you have to keep those things hidden and in a secret. Um, and those, and that's, and that, and those are, and when you keep it in secret, those are places where, you know, young queer people can really like get into some things that they're not ready to handle. They can run into trouble because, you know, they're, they're, they're exploring this world on their own. They don't have anyone saying, I want you to come to my house and I want to meet you first. Um, you know, we didn't have those type of things. We just had, you know, the internet and going to meet strangers. Um, and that's literally what it was. It was interesting that you're saying about kind of creating this safe space, because one of the things I thought when I was reading through the book and I got to the Oakland section, my, my initial thought was I stopped. And I wrote down that one of the things that I noticed in the collection as a whole is that you have the ability to make the universal very intimate, that you write about these broad topics with like this laser focus that kind of works on dual levels. It tells a story that we all can kind of relate to, 
but also is very much personal to you into the into the the subject matter of the book. Um, and it made me want to ask you, is there a way that you think that you may be creating kind of a memoir via poetry? Um, or are you kind of looking at it as um, individual vignettes? Um, I, do, I do think it's very much memoir work um, and like via poetry because um, that is like, um, I don't know. Um, it's just very, it's just easier for me to um, write about. And it's like, and it's also the way I'm like, like, you know, thinking about things, like, you know, the way the connections that I'm making, but it's always just been easier. And it's like, you know, and maybe this will change as I get older, but it's always just been easier for me to like, you know, put it in poetry because if anything, if anything is going to hide the truth that you are still unable to just like explicitly say, it's going to be like the metaphors, it's going to be the images and like, you know, give people something to like, kind of like, like extract and they will extract their own messages from them, but you still got out what you needed to get out. Um, yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's it's surely memoir, um, and like I'm I'm really big on like taking stories that my mother has told me and like you know relaying them in some in some poetic form, um, and I'm also like just like you know when I go back and think of some of these, um, especially like you know I'm still there's still like you know there there are things in Southern Migrant Mixtape that I talked about about my past, but there were still things in that book that I was like still not ready to like write about. So, and now I'm getting to the point where it's just like, yeah, I think it's, it's time for me to, you know, talk about some of these, you know, deeper and more traumatic things. Um, and like, I just always feel safe being able to express them in poetry uh, because I also think poetry has a way of um, relaying an emotion and a feeling differently than me just like being very explicit with it. Um, there's a, you know, there's, there's tone in poetry. There's, there's a strong expression of tone in poetry. So sometimes I just feel like, you know, when I'm, when it's a feeling and it is, it's like a memory, but it's a memory that, um, that was initiated by a feeling or, you know, some type of, sense that wasn't like you know it could have been like a smell it could have been like you know the way i saw some walk someone walking or presenting themselves that reminded me of someone or something that i see in my students it's like this feeling or like this it's like it's it's not expressed in just like like speech it's, it's expressed in like other in another type of sense and i feel like the only way i can relay that is through poetry um but in, and that's memoir because it is like memoir is it's like me telling myself my truth. And also, you know, um, you can write memoirs for other people. It's also memoir of my, 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 my lineage. Um, because like, um, my mother's a storyteller. My mother was one of the first people, my mom, my mom loves to tell stories and she tells stories very well. Sometimes she can, you know, go all over the place. My mom's one of those people where she tells a story, you, like at the end of it, you see, you could see a direct line where she could have told the story um, much simpler, simply, um, but um, she goes all over the place, which uh, which I love because she's giving you all of this context. Um, 
And I just love, um, I'm a very, I'm a very much tied to, I want to know like who my people were, you know, where my people came from, but like, there's just been so much trauma. It seems like on both sides of my family where like, you know, people had trouble, you know, really telling their stories. Like, uh, my mom's mom, my nanny, I love the woman to death, but, um, her stories, like she would tell stories, but her stories were very much um, fragmented um, with her sense of humor and the ways in which she kind of like um, uh, um, tried to, you know, um, cover up a lot of the pain that she experienced in her life. Um, so the ways in which she told stories was very much like there was like a lot of, there was a, you can, uh, like looking back on a lot of the stories she told, there was a lot that she was saying to us as kids, but like there was also a lot that she was keeping out because we were kids. Uh, And then she passed away before, like, you know, I got old enough to, you know, be the person that I am now that could really like probably go back and talk to her about some of these things or ask her the questions that I want to ask her. Um, And then on my dad's side of the family, it was just like, you know, my, my dad kept a lot of, his trauma. And my dad was also, he would also tell us stories, but like looking back on like my dad's life and maybe because he was a black man that grew up in the South and grew up in a very like um, heavily traumatic, like home life. Like he, he, he held a lot. Like he, 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 and he still does. Um, He's, he's very much the type of person that just is going to die with a lot of, the things that have hurt hurt him in life. He's not going to, he's not, he's never going to be vocal about them. He's never going to get them out in a healthy way. Um, whereas my mom's side of the family, it was just like, they were trying to be as healthy as they can be. And my mom today is still trying to be as mentally healthy as she can be. And like, you know, with, you know, getting some of the stuff that is, you know, haunting her or like bothering her or plaguing her, like being able to articulate it and get it out. Um, so it's always like kind of like, first of all, like I love family. I love, I love finding out more and more about my family, however hard it is. Uh, but second of all, it's just kind of like, um, I see what being silenced has done to my my like my ancestors if you will i see what being silenced has done to them and i don't want to be that way um and i think that's another as far as like the i think that's it goes on a bigger scope of just like the the african-american community it's just like there's so much about our histories that we just don't want to talk about um and like so much of that trauma has just been inherited and passed down that, you know, we, we are so willing to give excuses for people. Um, but, you know, when all we have to do is pretty much just kind of like let these stories out, stop giving people excuses and just like kind of like um, tell it like it is so we can heal, so we can heal from it. Um, because I feel like, you know, I was. I was going through so much depression, um, holding on to some of the stuff that was in Southern Migrant Mixtape. Um, whereas when I when I finally completed it, it was just like, you know, this is out. 
This is this is this is out of my body now. Um, this isn't this 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 load of bricks I'm carrying anymore. It's now like you know it belongs to the world, and hopefully it helps somebody else. Like you know, um, remove the load of bricks from their own backs. Um, because I just I'm just all about just like getting getting it out, just like expressing it however you need to express it to get it out because it's healthy and um and and it's all about like you know the black community right now the conversation needs to be about mental health and letting go of a lot of these traumas that we are still holding on to and that was one of the things i wanted to ask you is that there was a is there a particular poem in the collection that you kind of feel most connected to um was there one that kind of was like the catalyst for you pulling the collection together at all Pretty much like um, one book is like an, um, I would say it's amalgam. That's why it's probably in sections because it's amalgam of these like these catalysts in each section. I would say in the first section of home, the catalyst was the camping trip and the things that happened to me in Charlottesville, Virginia, and the things that continued to happen in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, because that was. As far as that, as far as that, um, that story or that poem is really like exploring, like, um, because I went on this camping trip and in the camping trip, it was during, um, it was like, I think it was, um, uh, when Obama was going into office, um, either the first time or the second time, I can't, I, I think it was the first time and just like seeing how divided the South was, um, and also just like really noticing how, you know, like there there are a lot of white people in the South, racist white people in the South who don't want black people in their spaces. And a lot of these spaces are like very tied to nature. They're not urban. They're very much, like, you know, sprawling, grassy, mountainous, very beautiful bucolic landscapes. And it's um, and that was like, you know, that camping trip and me analyzing that camping trip through the years really like opened my eyes to how, you know, nature like taken from us. Um, something I really just want to explore and I still like to explore writing is just like how nature is taken from, you know, people of color, um, you know, like, first of all, you 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 wanted to call. Africans just because when you went first went to Africa and stole us and we were in tribes, you wanted to say that we were savages and we were like, you know, animals. So like in a sense, you were saying that we were very much close to, tied to and of nature. Then then we were stolen away to America and we were forced to, you know, kind of reformat the landscape from nature to like farm. Um, and then when, you know, uh, we were freed, um, you wanted to fear nature uh, because you just wanted us to have fear altogether. Um, you wanted us to be afraid of nighttime because of lynch mobs and the KKK. And you wanted to kind of be so fearful of the world outside and freedom itself that you could, like, try into things like, you know, um, like, you know, always working service jobs, sharecropping, all of these um, subservient 
jobs where, you know, we were still very much the slave. And that was all done with fear. And that was all done with, you know, kind of like confining and taking us away from nature. Um, And then there is... um, goes into like, you know, just like, you know, like the fear itself, um, which is something that when I lived in Los Angeles, um, that, that, that conversation with fear, um, piece in the, um, book, um, very much just like me, only, the only time I've lived alone, the first and only time I've lived alone, I lived in a studio apartment in Koreatown in Los Angeles. And that was also like kind of when, Everything I said about, you know, getting this trauma out, that's when I realized I had to do that. Because when I lived in Los Angeles, um, you know, um, that was when my depression really got really bad. Um, it was the second time in my life that I really came close to suicide. Um, and it was a time of my life where, you know, everybody wanted to, like, back home, they wanted to say, Trey, you live not only. You, you moved to California, but now you live in your second place in California. You live in LA, like really doing it. But I'm just like, I'm depressed. Um, I have all of these things keeping me up at night because, you know, I don't have people around to find off of them. So I'm, I'm in face with them right now and I really need to get this stuff out in some way or form. Um, so I started writing it and that's pretty much when I started, you know, kind of like putting all of these pieces together that eventually turned into the Southern Migrant Mixtape. And then it got to, um, you know, the part Black Sweet where the catalyst was just that, that summer. And like, you know, the, and like leading up to that summer was Sandra Bland. Um, and like out of all of the, for some reason, out of all, like, Every time I see the death of a black or brown person in the news, I feel it. But when it was something, there was something about Sandra Bland where I, I don't know, I maybe need to do a genealogy, but there was something I was like, when, when I saw her face, I saw the face of some people on my mom's side of the family. I saw my sister's faces. Um, I just saw something in her that felt like it was like 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 we shared the same blood, and I felt it. Um, and then the same thing happened with Khalif Browder when I first like heard his interviews. Um, there was like this timbre in his in his voice that was just so connecting, it, like it connected me to him, and I felt like you know I felt his loss, I felt his pain. So then to like hear that he actually committed suicide um, really hurt me. And then after that, it was just like, you know, the, the pool party at um, in Dallas, Texas, where Jeria Becton was tackled by that cop. Uh, and then there was the church shooting. And that church shooting reminded me of like the, the church arson attacks in the South in the 90s when I was a kid. So it was in all of this stuff together was that it was like that fear that that was just being like reborn in me because I I remember just having like nightmares as a kid when I because also when when the when churches started being set on fire in the 90s in the south was during a time where like my family kind of went from 
not going to church that often to going to church every Sunday because my father got the calling to preach. Um, And it was just like, so we were spending more time in churches and like, you know, in the South, they love doing revivals and having like, you know, these, these church meetings that go into the night, um, go deep into the night. And we grew up in Fredericksburg, Virginia, which is, they like to call it the city of Fredericksburg, but it's very much like a suburb of DC or Northern Virginia, um, a small town. Um, but, you know, we grew up in a place where, you know, street lights you can see, you know, everything was well lit. And then sometimes my dad would take us to, you know, back to places where he grew up, which was very country, very sprawling marshland along the Chesapeake Bay, very flat, um, a lot of like, you know, um, bony pine, spiny pine trees. Uh, And I just remember like, you know, being at some of those revivals and like, you know, just looking out of the church windows into like this vast darkness and thinking that like, yo, if like, you know, these white people wanted to come burn this place down right now, we would all just like die. And that also um, one of one of the and that also ties to. Um, this is something that's been on my mind lately was just like, when did I first started fearing, you know, fearing uh, what white people could do to black people? And I remember like that was also around the time when um, that man was dragged in Jasper, Texas. And I remember that, yeah, and I remember that being on the news, he was dragged, like a man actually being dragged by a, by a, tr- like chained and dragged by a truck. Um, and like how, like they, even on the news, like showed like his body parts along the road, um, and hearing them describe like what actually happened to his body and me just like being like, that was like an awakening for me, for me to realize like, I am not safe in this world. And even the, the parents I have who are supposed to be able to protect me, if it really came down to it, they couldn't even keep me safe because, you know, like it seems that, you know, racist white people can do anything to a black body and it it wouldn't even amount to, like they wouldn't even get anything. And that was like what the movie A Time to Kill came out to. And I remember watching that and I'm just like, it was just the overload of these things that were happening. Um, so like, I guess that needed to come out in the book and it came out with the, uh, fire next time poem, but, um, I'm still like, even like thinking of, I need to talk about, I need to add on to that, uh, because I need to talk about when I first got this fear of, I guess, essentially white people or when I first like, you know, opened my eyes to like, you know, what they could do to us in America, even today. Um, And then you do get to the Oakland part. um, And Oakland is just like, um, even though Oakland still, there's still racism in Oakland. um, There's this aspect of when I was leaving the South, I felt like I was in this tiny bubble where I, I could not be myself. And I felt like I was suffocating 
Um, so then when I got into grad school in San Francisco, it was just like, oh, like this is my way out. Um, and I came out here blind. Like it was, I was, I'm a country bumpkin. I was 25 years old. I had never been on a plane before. I had never been to California before. And I got on, a, I, I sent them my, my acceptance. Um, um, I, I, I t- um, confirmed my acceptance with um, California College of the Arts. I came out here for school and I came out here blind. I was just like, I'm going to make it. You know, I'm just going to make it. I remember my sister dropping me off in West Oakland and just crying because I, I did not know what I had gotten into. It's just like, I'm really like, you know, she like, she stayed out here with me. She stayed out here with me for a week. And then when that week was up, I just remember her dropping me off at my, the place I was renting um, in West Oakland uh, and us hugging and me just looking around and, you know, seeing like this is this world is so new to me. And now, like, you know, someone who has always been a, a backbone for me is about to go back to the airport and fly back to Virginia. And I'm going to be out here 2,900 miles away from home by myself. Um, and I remember just crying. But there was a sense that was just like, yo, like out here, like, you know, people call Oakland like the Atlanta of the West Coast. And I'm just like, so, you know, there's black, there's a lot of blackness out here, but also people call the Bay Area like the the gay Mecca. So it's just like, you know, I can very much, my bubble just felt a little bit bigger until I, you know, of course, like started like realizing that, oh, this, this thing called gentrification in Oakland is just outright racism. Um, oh, the Castro was very much a, a, a safe space for white gay people. Um, and, you know, like, and just realizing all of these things that made me just analyze my experience even more because it was just like, you know, there really is no safe space in America for the black body. Um, we, we can like, we like to like say there are these, these, these places that are, you know, safer for us, but, you know, even Atlanta is surrounded by a whole bunch of people who, you know, um, are, you know, um, racist. Um, and the same goes for California. If you're not in like Los Angeles or the Bay area, you are very much in like, you know, red territory and even some parts of the Bay Area itself um, are very much um, red and conservative um, and, you know, want to remain very homogenous, um, homogenously white. Um, So it was just kind of like me, like bringing it all together, whereas like, you know, like it's, it's kind of me just coming full circle because I thought I was escaping all of these things that gave me fear but they were right. They're, they're still here. But actually like I'm at this point in my life where I don't fear them anymore. Um, I feel like I'm very much in a time and place in my life where, you know, I choose to be in Oakland because I really love teaching in Oakland, but like I had to go back to the South. Like um, there were years ago where I said, I would never go back to the South because it's easier for me out here um, but now I'm just like, if I had to go back to the South, I would go back with my head high and I would be who I am. I would be, I would, I would still teach and I would try to teach in an environment that will allow me to be myself. 
Um, and, and when I say myself, I mean my black queer self. Um, and I wouldn't fear any any backlash from it because if there is any backlash from it, it means that you know a movement needs to take place here. Um, yeah, so um, I feel like yeah, just like every every section of that book just had its own catalyst, um, and I just kind of put them all together. Um, like had well, they had their own catalyst for me to fully get them out and express them. Um, and then I also just feel like uh, one of the big catalysts in the book itself is just like my mother gave me my spirit, that poem. Uh, to me, that is the heart of that book um, because I, I probably wouldn't be a storyteller if it wasn't for my mother. Um, I wouldn't be like the academic person and the, the uh, as like, you know, the artistic person that I am if it wasn't for my mother. Um, I would say that my father gave me a lot of my critical thinking skills, but a lot of who I am um, in society and my my urge to give back to society came from my mother and my grandmother. Um, you know, I'm very much the type of person I love to feed people I love, and I get all of that um, from my mom's side of the family. Um, so I have a couple more questions for you. The first being... Um, what is the writing legacy that you want to leave? Like, I know that you teach and we've discussed kind of creating a safe space via words for people to be able to tell their stories. But um, on top of that, is there anything else you kind of want to leave um, as your legacy in terms of a creative life? Um, I just want to, um, I really just want to write the black, my experiences, um, I think of anything, my legacy, both in my writing and in the classroom is just to create a space where people feel safe being vulnerable. Um, cause as a teacher, I feel like if you can create a, a space where, um, students feel vulnerable, they're going to be more accepting of education. Um, they're going to, they're going to be more open to, not only sharing themselves, but sharing their thoughts uh, without the fear that someone is going to, you know, um, make them feel some feel othered or, um, you know, make fun of them or anything like that because of the way they're thinking. I've always usually, um, up until this year, I've always worked in a teaching environment where um, kids came to my classroom with a lot of trauma from education, a lot of trauma from their own personal lives. And it's like they didn't, they didn't, you know, they didn't trust authority. They didn't trust me at first. And I'm just like, you know, I'm going to make this classroom feel like home to them because, you know, in the classrooms um, where I felt like I was at home, those are the classrooms where I felt like I did my best writing and I was able to engage in conversations where I didn't fear that my voice was going to be um, laughed at or, you know, um, criticized or anything like that. I just felt, you know, like I am free to just be my whole self here. Uh, and in my writing, I want, I hope that I'm presenting myself in a way that, shows um, people um, how liberating it can be to be vulnerable on a page um, in hopes that they do the same. Um, 
I'm very much that type of person. I just want everyone to write, um, especially like people who may um, have like a different, um, a different spin or position on things. Um, like I, I want to, and I also like the, the, now I'm getting to this point where I really want to pull writing from the academic space. Like a lot of people feel like, oh, in order to be a writer, you have to, you know, um, be, have like, you know, degrees or like, you know, have this education. And I'm just like, no, like, you know, especially in the black community, our stories were passed down orally um, before they were written down. Um, And like, you know, there's still a lot of oral expression that we can share with one another and experiences that we can share with one another. Uh, I have like this big project I just want to do. And I don't necessarily know if I, if I have to go to grad to get, go to grad school for it, or if I can get funding for it, but I really just want to um, like um, travel through like the South and go for like different like barbershops, um, beauty, um, beauty salons, and like cooking spaces to like kind of like explore the storytelling that happens there, and how um, we as a black people we will you know um, pass down ideologies in like barbershops and salons and cooking spaces. We you know share our family histories we will express our intolerances like there's so much um so many so much that can be taken from the conversations that happen in southern black barbershops and i just want to like like be able to explore that and um like like be um and critically like expound upon it uh but um yeah i just i just want to especially tell um, black people as a whole, the importance of, you know, telling our stories and writing and continuing to fight ourselves into this literary world, um, and let our presence be known. Um, but also I just want to like tell all people who feel like they have been, you know, pushed to the margin that it's like, it's important and liberating and to to really like share these traumatic stories that we are holding inside and running from um and i and you know and, and just bring up that whole conversation of the importance of mental health in the the african american community so we can you know start healing our community uh, as a whole and so in the spirit of your book, um, which I love the title of, um, I wanted to know if you were to give our listeners a soundtrack for your work, um, what would be the top three tracks you would ask them to listen to? Um, the top three tracks. Um, I'm terrible with song names, so I'm going to Google a couple. Um, but I really do, like, while you're looking, I really do enjoy the book. I was reading it, and if you could see my copy of it, it has all kinds of little sticky note flags and, and markings. Um, it's just really well put together. Um, one of the things I really loved about it was actually seeing you read from it first and then reading the book afterwards. Um, it, it meshes together so well. You have this amazing ability to immerse people in a sense of place is just well, well, well done. And even things like how you break your lines 
um, are amazing. There is a line in the decomposition of Emmett, um, there is a disease in this land. And I circled it and put all these explanation marks around it because I was thinking like, mm-hmm. this works on three levels. Like the idea of this is a mixtape. So th- there is a disc there and you break the line and then the next line being mm-hmm. ease in the land. So the idea of okay. this and then a disease and a dis-ease, like it was just super dope. And then you harken back to it in the last poem before the recipe in the book as well, um, which was kind of like a refrain, which I love because it refrained this idea of like spiritual and, and hymns and kind of this black call and response. So it was just it was a lovely way that you did that. Uh, so um, I guess my, my my three tracks would be Nina Simone to be Young, Gifted, and Black, um, and um, Oh Happy Day, um, the gospel song Oh Happy Day, um, and a third one, I feel like a third one would definitely have to be something that is Lauren Hill, um, because that album impacted me a lot. So let's go with X Factor. I want to say thank you so, so much for being willing to talk to us. This has been a great conversation, just not only in terms of the book itself, but just in terms of society and culture and kind of where we as Black people and Black writers need to kind of like step into the gaps and blow open the gaps in order to make sure our voices are heard. I'd like to say thank you to the listeners for listening to us. Um, I'm Athena Dixon, and I've been speaking with Vernon Key III, and this is the New Books and Poetry podcast on the New Books Network. Thank you.